the punishment was too severe? What's wrong with you people? Evangelical churches today are increasingly dominated by the spirit of this age rather than by the spirit of Christ. But yet, tragically, the popular evangelical authors and conference speakers today who are teaching that justification is by faith alone, but entering heaven is not by faith alone, there are other conditions to be met. A what? No holiness, no heaven. You don't get into heaven by faith alone. You get justified by faith alone. You get into a position where God is 100% for you by faith alone. And in order to get into heaven, that faith must bear the fruit of love. You will find that it is you who are mistaken about a great many things. Back to the Reformation. It has been more than 500 years since the Reformation. The 21st century church has departed from the authority of scripture and the gospel. We welcome you to listen in as we go back to the Reformation. The views of this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of the churches the host attend. Now witness the firepower of this fully armed and operational battle station. And welcome back to another episode of Back to the Reformation podcast. My name is Matt Rosenblum, and I'm here with my co-host, Onyx Sayadian. And today we have a guest, actually a former guest, who we are excited to have back on the show. And this time he has a brand new podcast. And our guest is Shane Rosenthal, the former producer of The White Horse Inn. Welcome back, Shane. Hey, it's great to be here, guys. Great to have you back, man. It's good to be back. <laughs> anyway, we're having you back on because you have a brand new podcast, and that podcast is called what? The Humble Skeptic. Very good. And can you please tell us about that? <laughs> you want to know some more about it, huh? <laughs> yeah. And can the you humble, please? The Humble Skeptic, where the truth isn't afraid of questions. All right. That's my tagline. How do you like the tagline? I love it. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Everybody, it's a, it's a provocative t- title as well. It is. Yeah. I was kind of looking for something a little broader, not only something that would appeal to people inside our circles, but actually something that would appeal to people from a wide variety of perspectives and backgrounds. And uh, I think in our circles, conservative reformed uh, camps, we tend to think of the word skeptic as um, kind of like the, the a term that's used by the new atheists. <laughs> exactly. Synonymous with atheism, correct? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so I'm trying to, I'm pulling at those uh, threads in the broad Christian tradition uh, in our own Bible, which sort of say, you shouldn't believe everything. That's actually a, a line from Proverbs 14, 15. The simple man believes everything, but the wise man gives thought to his steps. Or you could think of a text like, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits uh, to see whether they are from God, for there are many false prophets uh, around. So we are not simply to be gullible. We should not believe every spirit, which me says we should be skeptical (laughs) and how do how do we distinguish between the true and the good well that's another thing paul says uh test all things and hold on to the good so if you're going to test all things that means you're going to test ideas that are even floating around in your own head 
because everybody's ideas can all be right. We differ with a lot of people. I differ from some of the views I had 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, so I know that all my ideas then weren't right, but how do I know that my ideas now are right? Well, so I just think we, we should test them and evaluate them. And as Christians who do believe in uh, the authority and sacredness of this particular book we call the Bible, we should test things with that book. However, the question first uh, that we should ask is, why do we believe this book is sacred and holy? There are a lot of competing holy books out there. Amen. That's where I want to start with a, a wider audience and tug at those threads. How do we, how did Christianity grow in the first place? It, it seemed to, to attract a wide uh, number of converts who were willing to give their lives uh, as they were being thrown to the lions, uh, used as torches to light up Nero's garden. Something had to convince them. Uh, what persuaded them? And was it just a blind leap in the dark? Was it a burning in the bosom? Uh, no, that's not the kind of thing you find in the earliest Christian documents. You find persuasion, uh, you find arguments, per, uh, reasoning in the synagogues, uh, the use of evidence. What does Peter say in Acts chapter two? He says things like, uh, these things weren't done in a corner. Uh, you yourselves know these things have been attested, proven. And so that's what I want to kind of, I want to do with my audience is sort of work through um, who I am, what I, why I converted from atheism to Christianity, uh, but also to interact with other perspectives, other claims to truth and other claims to prophecy and uh, inspiration and figure out, you know, let's say if we can at least get outside of ourselves, there has to be an argument out there that's deeper than my feelings and my own subjective opinion. Amen. So, in other words, Shane, that we want to be rational without being rationalistic. And there needs to be an emphasis on the fact that we come from a knowledge tradition, that it's not devoid of knowledge. Yeah. Um, the, separating of, the separation of faith and knowledge has been a horrible thing. Uh, so, yes, in the tradition that I come from sort of goes back to old Princeton and in old Princeton, there was this sort of Scottish common sense realism. There is a real world and it was really, it's outside of you. Uh, you do not create the world. And this, uh, it, the, the world was created reasonably by uh, a, a God who thought and acted reasonably, which is why our minds can comprehend and consider the reasonableness of the world. And so if you take those uh, if you if you work from that foundation, you can get somewhere. Now, think of it the other way, like the atheistic perspective believes that we came from an irrational void and chaos. There isn't any reason to anything. Uh, how can you how can you have how, how does reason um, evolve out of that? You know, if I have two options to think through the world's problems with, uh, you know, two different kinds of computers one that was designed and one that was sort of random code. Which computer are you gonna to use to figure out your life's problems or the world's problems? The one that's got random code probably will just spit out gibberish. But, but if, if we are just sort of products of the randomness of the universe, why, how can we trust our own reason? So well, there's a, that's an argument for God's existence. 
right? So there's the, there's an epistemological problem there from a naturalistic mm-hmm. point of view, where if our cognitive faculties are arrived by a blind process, then how can we arrive at truth in the first place? Correct. Exactly. Yeah. So going back to you coining the podcast or the blog, actually, when it first started, uh, Humble Skeptic, how can you, some would argue that uh, we can't totally rely on observation and deduction and analysis to come up with the truth because there's forces out there of deception and whatnot. Uh, forming the, the title Humble Skeptic, can you have reliable um, conclusions from those analyses uh, because you feel that truth will always prevail? I actually, um, because I'm a Calvinist, I don't believe truth always prevails. <laughs> I believe mm-hmm. that hearts are dark and uh, some hearts will resist the truth no matter what. I mean, I just recently preached a sermon on Luke 16 and uh, the end of that parable, Jesus says, uh, they won't even be convinced, even if they see a dead man raised again from the dead. And it sounds almost absurd. I mean, imagine, imagine you see Ebenezer Scrooge at the end of the play after all four ghosts have visited him. And he's like, you find him counting money on Christmas morning and say, bah humbug. You know, that's not a play that's going to warm anyone's hearts. <laughs> hmm. However, it happens to be true because what Jesus said, came true there was a guy named Lazarus who was raised from the dead in John 11 and you know what he was convincing a lot of people but not everybody the the uh the chief priests actually planned to put him to death because he was convincing so many people and so there there that's a dark there's a darkness to the to many aspects of the human uh heart and frankly you know but for the grace of God go I so you would say in addition to whatever evidences are out there, you would need that special type of revelation to have that con- conviction. So I would say you can get to assent without the help of the Holy Spirit. You can, uh, people who are rightly, attend- it's not just presenting people with evidence. It's actually, you know, lawyers will talk about this. It's attending to the evidence, carefully attending to the evidence and that can get you to the place where you say, hmm, there is no rational, natural explanation for these things. But then the heart will do what it wants and it will resist the conclusions uh, of that. So it doesn't actually trust the one who is presented by the supernatural miracles. So you can get to ascent. Um, You can know and you can ascend, uh, ascend to these truths. This is the kind of thing you find in the book of Exodus. I mean, think about the uh, the beginning story of the whole the whole deal. Moses sees this burning bush and God confronts him saying, I am the God of your fathers and uh, I want you to go speak a message of liberation. What does he say? He says, this is fantastic. No, he's actually like, they're not going to believe me. What am I going to tell him? I was talking to a bush. I mean, this isn't going to go well. (laughs) So he said, God does not come back and tell Moses. Well, Moses, I'm going to give them a burning in their bosom so they will know for sure. He doesn't say they're just going to know deep, deep down in their heart. It'll be this deep knowing, uh, this experiential knowing. 
No, there's nothing subjective there. What he says is, I will give them a sign. And if they don't believe that sign, I'll give them another sign. And if they don't believe that sign, I'll give them another sign. It's something external to the word to confirm the word. Mm-hmm. So those external signs, as you know, the story grow and become all the plagues of Egypt and it becomes overwhelming. Uh, but some people still resist and, you know, want to go their own way. In fact, a lot of people still in Israel didn't believe. They didn't trust. They knew cognitively, but they didn't trust in Yahweh to save. So that's there's a difference between knowledge and actual volitional trust. Uh, and I would say faith isn't a blind leap. It's an, It involves knowing. You can't actually know. Yeah. Um, you can't actually believe in something you know nothing about because the word belief actually means to trust something that is inherently trustworthy. Yeah. We have a historical faith. The resurrection is a historical event. It's something that we put our faith in. That's true, but it's not a blind leap in the dark, as you say. Right. Yeah. And that's the history of, uh, you know, prophecy too. If you look at Deuteronomy 13 and 18, there are a couple criteria. How do you know that the, the future prophets will be with equal authority uh, as Moses. And what we find is they have to continue with the theology of Moses, because if they lead you to false gods or other gods, excuse me, then these are not uh, Yahweh's uh, prophets, they're false prophets. Uh, so even if they have miracles, if they lead you into other, a different theology, reject them. The second one is they have to be able to, to declare the future before it happens. That's that external sign that shows, uh, and that this is what Isaiah boasts about, uh, or God boasts about through the prophets Isaiah. It's like, can your idols declare something uh, in advance? Can they speak the future before it happens? But I declare that Cyrus will come liberate the people. He's starting. To, he's just talking about things that are going to happen a couple of hundred years in advance, so clearly that most naturalistic historians think it had to be a different Isaiah. Well, that I, that, that idea doesn't really float when you look at a chapter like Isaiah 53, because Isaiah 53 is speaking the future 700 years in advance. It looks like a chapter from the gospel of John or Mark or Luke. I mean, it's so clear. So we have very good evidence uh, in the form of like, there's no way to explain this text apart from concluding that it's a divine text. And that's something I'll be exploring on my podcast. Shane, yeah. go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, I was uh, going to say that uh, in your debut uh, podcast, uh, we, you don't mention any of the things you just ta- we just talked about. You you're you're setting up this foundation, right? Of of how to think, uh, how how to approach truth and knowledge and so on. Is that fair to say? Uh, I don't even go into that. Uh, what, I, what I do on my first pilot episode, uh, which your viewers, your listeners can, uh, which your listeners can uh, head to by just going to my website, humbleskeptic.com. Uh, and there's a link to play the pilot episode there. It's, it's really, uh, what I decided to do was to not speak philosophically or abstractly about any of this. I just told a story about uh, something my dad said like a few months ago, he just in passing, he said that he was, he happened to see Billy Joel, you know, play at a piano bar before he was famous. And 
you know, at the time, it, nothing sort of uh, um, grabbed me at the moment. But then I started thinking about it, maybe even after I heard the song Piano Man, like, wait a minute, my dad saw Billy Joel perform at a piano bar before he was famous. Billy Joel wrote a song about that. And so I'm starting to connect the dots. And then I was, you know, coming up with um, various, you know, conflicting pieces of information. Was my dad really there at the bar that Billy Joel performed at? Um, can I trust him in light of this data over here? Where was he even in the same town? Was he at the right place at the right time? Lots of conflicting information. So it's kind of investigative about that topic, but it, it's kind of, it ends up being a parable of how do you find the truth and should you just believe, should, you just, should I have I just had blind faith in my dad's story? It's, especially in light of the fact that it seemed to conflict with other things. At one point, you know, I had a different address and I wasn't sure he was in the right city. And so I just kind of investigate this and that's kind of the approach I want to take throughout the, uh, throughout every episode. I want it to be investigative. I want it to be a little fun. I want it to be, to have, uh, you know, I want to have analogies mm -hmm. so that people can kind of follow along and see where I'm going. I was really surprised because this one was a little bit, sort of out there, very non-theological. Um, but right. I was really surprised by the response. I, everybody seemed to get where I was going. I do kind of set it up in the first three minutes and I conclude with a little bit of, you know, I, I kind of explain what I was trying to do in the, in the last four minutes. But mostly it's just this fun story that's investigative in nature and sort of fun, you know, pulling and tugging at all the pieces. Yeah, I found it very interesting that your dad had convictions that on certain facts and wasn't quite sure on others like he was sure yeah. that it was the the bar was on the corner of western and wilshire yeah positive about that and that it was a uh, building and there was a bank and a life insurance uh company or some of some yeah some yeah it's a, it's a bank in the building and it's it, it was in the lobby of that it's in the corner and he's got the street very clear memories that i could test Right. So this wasn't just like this is something I feel in my heart, uh, because when Mormons have knocked at my door and told me they had a feeling in their heart, I, how can I test that? <laughs> you know, it's like, how do you know that your detector for the feeling that God will give you to confirm his word in your heart is the is really God? Do you have a like a like an approved God detector? Because there are a lot of people who feel in their heart that they have the right religion, but they're not Mormon. It can um, also so, be it can it can also be it be indigestion, right? Is it what could I'm be talking. indigestion. Yeah, it w maybe Pepsid would help if you have burning in your heart. <laughs> uh, so, but in this case, my dad was giving me data that I could I could test, and and I have to say I trusted my dad when he first told me the story. But when I when my brother sort of came up with um, you know Wikipedia information that this actually took place here, and we lived in West Virginia at the time, that. I started having doubts and I'm sure, you know, people can connect the dots that the analogy is sort of, you know, there are a lot of people who are raised believing the religion of their parents and then they find a YouTube video or uh, some conflicting information. Their professor at college gives them something, some information and they begin to doubt. I'm actually encouraging people to doubt. I have no problem with doubt. I think doubt and questioning is actually a good thing because mm -hmm. We should not believe this thing if it's not true. And there's no problem. There was no problem with me checking with my dad and asking him questions. There was no problem. He had no 
he wasn't offended at all. He, he just was there to answer my questions. And that's sort of my approach is ask truth is not afraid of questions, bring them, roll up your sleeves. Let's, let's think this through. Is that, that's what you meant when you said health, uh, we all should have a healthy dose of skepticism. Yeah. Because we, we are, as Christians, we're told not to believe everything that's gullibility. And there are more things that we should not believe than there are things to believe. (laughs) Well, if you think about that, we should be skeptical. So Shane, so in response to hard skepticism, skepticism is okay. As long as you're skeptical about your skepticism. Exactly. And that's the point I do make at the end of the podcast, because I didn't go into the, to the experience with my dad thinking, um, I, I can't have any confidence about anything. Um, I'm o- I only have questions and I'm not actually trying to find answers. I'm only, it, it, that person, you know, if you're so open-minded, you end up having your brains fall out. That ends up being a, a different kind of problem. I went in asking questions in order to find answers. And once you find answers, you, you arrive somewhere. So uh, I, I now, I'm with my dad. My dad in the podcast said he was 95% sure that he was in the bar in which Billy Joel was playing. And this was in the time during which he wrote Piano Man. I'm convinced that he did see Billy Joel. And I'm convinced that, um, you know, that he did not see uh, Hang Out with Davey, who was still in the Navy, or Paul, the real estate novelist. And he's, I, I, but I am convinced that he was there. And he did give me some factual information about his experience there. But I could, that could also be overturned with later with a new revelation. Uh, so I'm open to the possibility of being corrected, just like Paul was open to the possibility that uh, Jesus had not risen. Uh, but what, what Paul does, you know, because if Jesus has not been risen, we are all men most to be pitied. We are, uh, our faith is in vain. So it is possible. But what he does is he marshals evidence of two kinds. Very interesting evidence. Number one, eyewitness testimony. Uh, he was seen by Peter and the 12 and James and, and uh, by over 500 brothers at a single time. And he was seen by me. Uh, then he also says, as, a, as was revealed in the scriptures, according to the scriptures, he repeats this a few times. So he was seen in real time by living eyewitnesses, but he was seen ahead of time by the seers, by the four seers. That's something different and unique that you don't find in any other religion. It's also interesting the way your father has remembered all those years later. For instance, you know, you commonly get the atheist attack. Well, look at the, the actual gospels were actually written many, many years later after the events. And they say, well, how can someone remember to that detail? Well, your father's a good example of that. Yeah, he, he does really provide a, a great example of uh, eyewitness testimony and also these little sort of the way memory works, these little irrelevant details that turn out to be not irrelevant at all. <laughs> like this reference to uh, the fact that it was a bank. I was able to find, okay, the, the building he's thinking of did have a bank. Uh, mm-hmm. And he, he he's... He's making all these kind of statements that I can then check and they, they turn out to be, and this is the nature of eyewitness testimony. Richard Bauckham has some, done great work on this, you know, in his book, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, because Amazing. he talks about 
the the character of eyewitness testimony is, is very different from uh, what we might consider fan fiction. You know, the fan fiction gospels like uh, the Gnostic gospels, Gospel of Thomas, Gospel of Judas. One of the things that you find in the fan fiction gospels, they're written, you know, much later. You can check these little details. One of the things he talks about a lot is names. So it, the, all the names in the gospels turn out to be the right kind of names for the first century in for first century Judea. And they're not only the right names, but they're in the right ratio in terms of like, which are the most popular names. The, the distribution of them is exact. And this is when you combine Luke and Matthew, Mark, Luke and John and, and Acts, all the names that we have in these gospels, put them in a list, you compare the, the ratio and they, they match beautifully with the ratio of popular names in uh, from all the artifacts we have. Um, we have, I think, 2,000 names in that database. Well, when you look at the Gnostic Gospels, what you find are um, any new name that is not from the Gospels, not carried over from the knowledge of what the Gospels had reported, any new name does not match at all. It's not a, it's more like an Egyptian name. It's, it's a different kind of name that's not anywhere on the list. So it kind of shows you this is what we would do for writing a story set in the 1800s New York you know, you're trying to think of the Gertrudes and the Ednas and the, uh, these older names, but you're not going to get them in the right proportion, right ratio. And you might even find a name that isn't, that wasn't really popular at all. Uh, that kind of stuff is most of us overlook when we're reading the gospels because uh, we're looking, you know, the, the brightness of Jesus character so shines, it, it blinds you to all these little nooks and crannies and artifacts that are testable, but the gospel is full of them. In the Gospel of Thomas, from what I remember when I was studying uh, critiques of it, is that the Gospel of Thomas reads like myth. It doesn't read like historical narrative the way the Gospel. Well, there's do. hardly any history there. It's it's all the secret esoteric sayings, and uh, he's just and it's it's very Gnostic and Greek and Platonic. You know, he is from the Ogdode and the Pleroma, and there's nothing about uh, no city names, no place names, no botanical information, no architectural information. By contrast, the Gospels are filled with that stuff, and it's all corroborated, you know, with what we know from first century Judea. So Shane, why don't you define Gnosticism for those in our audience who are not aware of what Gnosticism is? So Gnosticism is a sort of early, um, maybe I would say a branch off of Platonic thought, uh, Greek thinking, which really emphasized um, that knowledge itself is the source of salvation. Um, and that, that spirit is the true reality and matter is evil. Those would be the two kind of the big, the big issues in Gnosticism. So a lot of the Gnostic heretics, uh, Irenaeus was the best sort of early church figure who went against and wrote a lot of, against the Gnostics who were trying to incorporate Christianity into, you know, to, uh, into their own worldview their Greek thinking, and they kind of blended Platonic thinking with their own, uh, with, you know, Christianity. And so it kind of made a hybrid, a third thing that wasn't Christianity uh, at all. And so one of the things they did was they would look back at the Garden of Eden story and say, here is the beginning of our hope. When Adam and Eve ate the apple, that was actually the source of their liberation. 
So you can kind of see how uh, knowledge in that view, if it's salvation, they were reaching for the apple and that was the source of their liberation, not of our sin and our, our, our doom. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, so in the, um, uh, the pilot episode, you talked about faith, how it can be blind. It could, uh, it could be some type of a leap in the dark in that um, you mentioned some of your own history uh, in atheism and how um, you converted to Christianity because you couldn't uh, form enough faith to be an atheist <laughs> for too long. And I thought that was really interesting. So, um, and then you continue to uh, uh, you know, talk about how there are conflicting views and we can't all be right. And then you have to start with asking questions. I think uh, I mean, this is like a fundamental type of uh, thinking because when I was growing up, uh, not growing up, but when I first became a Christian, you know, uh, the, the reason why I became a Christian, the, the Lord used, uh, has his means to save his own. And he used Isaiah 53 for me. Mm. Yeah. And I'm, uh, and I was uh, historically, uh, Isaiah came several hundred years before Christ and 700 years. Yeah. 700, several 700. Yeah. And, um, uh, and that convinced me that it was to a T he, Isaiah was describing Christ's crucifixion and several other things uh, in Isaiah 53. So that's what the Lord used to convince me. Now, um, of course, after that, uh, there's a number of other um, means that he used to further, uh, you know, nail the coffin of doubt away or, or whatever it is I want to use. Uh, but, uh then again you then you start talking about uh again what is the humble skeptic so because there are so many views you have to approach uh you have to approach these views with a skeptical attitude and um, i first thought how can that be profitable and beneficial to us and then then you went on it kind of made sense so how did yeah. you come to, to this perspective was it your formal um um, uh, theological training um, or the, uh, I don't know, what other type of training did you have? Yeah, well, my work at Whitehorse Inn for, for so many decades, um, one of the things that we were doing regularly was showing, you know, this need, just like you guys are talking about, getting back to the Reformation. We need to reform the way we are um, thinking, the way we are uh, acting the way we are doing church, all these things we, we're calling for reformation because a lot of the the mistakes that we see throughout church history are being done all over again, and we need to get back to the way the 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 truth is stated in the Word of God. So uh, when you look at the contemporary church, you see so many uh, mistakes and errors and uh, heretical ideas. Um, you have to be skeptical, not just of what Richard Dawkins says, but you have to be skeptical inside the church as well, or quote unquote church. I mean, do we want to call Joel, Joel Osteen a member of the church? I mean, he, he claims to be a Christian minister, but when you evaluate his words and, uh, you know, that he's just the easy, obvious, ta uh, target, but there are many, many authors, writers, popular speakers inside the Christian movement that we should be skeptical about. Now, this is not uh, merely uh, 
sort of a marketing tactic. This is actually taught in the Bible because Paul says, you know, I, he praises the Bereans for checking to see whether or not the things he was saying were really taught there in the Bible. He's, he's in, in Berea and he's, He's like talking about the fact that Jesus is the one from Isaiah 53 that convinced you, right? Well, they don't just take his word for it. He didn't say, now I, I'm an apostle. I'm speaking to you the word of God. So just, you know, bow the knee and submit. Um, he says he praises them for actually going back and checking to see. He's praising their skepticism. And the thing is, it's so clear in Isaiah 53. This is the reason why he wants them to be skeptical and to and to go and check the sources. You need to look at this for the now. You come up with a better ex- explanation besides Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Yeah. So uh, he didn't use what the um, the argument from authority. No. Is that what that's called? Yeah. Is, is that because you mentioned in your uh, podcast that people who who use those tactics, like an argument from authority, are usually tyrants. Right, not tyrants, yeah. but are usually um, well. I think you did say tyrants, but if you didn't, I, I apologize. Totalitarian. Totalitarian uh, is the word I think I used. Uh, if you are censoring opposition, you're not allowing a person to think. You're controlling the person, and you are uh, you're manipulating the person. And what I'm saying is, you need to give the person, whoever you're talking with, give them the full picture. And if they are right, and the the foundations of Christianity. Uh, is fallacious or, or crumbling, well, you shouldn't be a part of this. Uh, and if they have questions you can't answer, start digging into it and say, hmm, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about that. I should dig into that more. So we should not be afraid of questions. We should dig in. We need to roll up our sleeves. This is also involves the love of our neighbors. You know, you, everyone has relatives and friends and uh, neighbors who might be on a different planet, theologically, spiritually, with their worldview. And so, again, we can't all be right. So let's think through the claims. And in that process, it could be that you're explaining what, what motivates you, why you think yours is right. And I'm encouraging people to give objective answers because that's what I find in the text. You know, if you look through the book of Acts, you look through the sermons of the book of Acts, they're not appealing to subjective experience. They're appealing to objective things, a seen by witnesses and foreseen by the prophets. Now, Shane, I could be wrong, but it seems that you don't have a single apologetic methodology that you hold to <laughs> from where you're coming from. Am I correct or not? You are pretty close to being right there. Um, I, I like the kind of a sliding scale. My approach in apologetics is to answer the question that was given to me. So I don't give a spiel. I don't want to go through my four spiritual apologetic rules. Uh, I want to try and answer the question that was given to me. So if the person, um, you know, I think there are some really cool tools in the uh, evidentialist toolbox. There are cool tools in the presuppositionalist toolbox. Um yeah. But the most important thing that I think I think is missing in our apologetics toolbox is this idea that Onig just talked about, and that is fulfilled prophecy. I don't think that we don't we don't use that tool nearly enough. I was I too was convinced by texts like Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, Micah 5, 2, out of Bethlehem shall come the one. I mean, these texts really spoke to me. I was amazed that no one had ever told me any of this before. 
And when I began to read up on them, I was really persuaded that there wasn't a good explanation for them apart from these being fulfilled in Christ. And so I want to I want to do a little bit more work there. When I read through most apologetic books, what I find are sort of rationalistic, philosophical things, sometimes conversational things, but I don't really find an emphasis there with fulfilled prophecy. So that's something I want to. You know, someone who we have had on, who is who has been a guest two times on our show, and also is a friend of mine, is uh, Ken Samples. And Ken Samples is definitely one of my favorite contemporary apologists because Ken takes it all. Like you said, he uses fulfilled prophecy. He deals with worldview issues. He deals with, you know, all kinds of historical issues and he's not afraid to tackle them. So that's where my heart is as well. Um, I'm, I'm a Calvinist. I'm reformed in my theology. So obviously I'm aware of the noetic influences of sin, but at the same time, I am also aware that God, can use evidences to draw people to himself. Yeah, he uses means just like he, just like with preaching. Um, I, I don't know about you guys. Have you ever seen um, a guy like in a shopping mall just walking down and all of a sudden they're zapped and then they start singing a song? I mean, I, I, I've never seen that um, where <laughs> just you have this sort of regeneration happening instantaneously apart from the word. Mm-hmm. And so as a result, no, it's the faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. So mm-hmm. you, you can um, share with people the facts that are contained in the word. And when they meet objections, you know, cause a lot of people will either change the subject or they'll say, well, how do you really know? Well, the, well, answer those questions. That's the apologetic methodology that I'm recommending. Just answer the questions that they're asking and, and show that this is something that is uh, like, here, here's, here's a good way not to do it. Uh, well, because it says so in the word of God. Well, how do you know it's the word of God? Because it says it is. Okay, so if the Mormon tells you that, if you put this in the other, put it in another um, kind of argument, if this is the argument that you're giving to your neighbor, if the same argument were, were coming to you from your Mormon friend, would you find it persuasive? If your Muslim neighbor said, well, I know the Quran is the word of God because it says it's the word of God, you might have some questions. And what if you actually look at the Quran, it actually says there's a scene in which uh, Allah is asked by Muhammad, you know, this, similar to what happened with Moses. If I go to the people and they, they request a sign, will you give me a sign? And Allah says to Moses in this one uh, chapter, he says, say to them this, the signs belong to Allah. And I am but a humble preacher. So in other words, there is nothing external to the word besides the claim. There is only the claim. This is God's word and it'll help you with your life. And in this case, it'll really help you because if you don't, you're going to have the sword. (laughs) That'll be a problem for you. (laughs) Yeah. Interesting. Shane, let me ask you a question. Some might ask you why another apologetics podcast or ministry. So it's not just going to be apologetics. I am going to be doing uh, theology and worldview all sort of wrapped up in the same thing. So I'm going to be exploring uh, the theology of Scientology, of totalitarian systems, of and seeing comparisons between the two <laughs> um, of 
um, so also of Christian theology. So I'm going to, I'm going to try to, it, it, there will be some sort of, there's an evangelistic and uh, I want people to understand the reasons for the Christian faith, but I also want to confront them with the Christian faith. And I will try and do this in my street interviews with people. I will, I will get into conversations with people and we'll air more of those. I've been doing this for years at Whitehorse Inn. I'll have a little bit yep. more opportunity to engage with people and lengthier conversations. And we, we will have um, not merely apologetic moments, but also engaging theological conversations in those moments. And hopefully great. some with Lord's help, they'll be evangelistic. It's great. That's Shane, that's were, those, uh, great. were those interviews in the beginning of, of, of the podcast, were those, fresh new interviews or uh brand spanking new i have probably recorded close to 100 interviews over the summer and from and all those were from christian um context so oh my gosh variety of christian conversation christian gatherings mega churches conventions music uh concerts and so they're all christian they're claiming to be christian and uh they're talking about faith is this blind i would say 90 percent or so this is my basic estimate had this kind of approach of that faith mm. was a blind leap. It's a feeling, it's a gut thing. And very small minority talked about it's rooted in, in concrete things like fulfilled prophecy, eyewitness testimony, uh, mm -hmm. resurrection, that, that kind of thing. Yeah. It took me back to the old white horse in days when you were doing that for them. And uh, so um, I was wondering if those were taken out of those podcasts, but no, you've uh, already said they're brand new. Yep. They're so brand new. That's great. Yeah. It, uh, just like uh, uh, sh that's Shane Rosenthal style right there. You, you <laughs> didn't know, but you didn't know, but Onig was one of those weirdos that you were interviewing, but you weren't aware of at the time. <laughs> <laughs> I and, and yet he's still sane. That's weird. <laughs> so, so yeah, that's exciting, Shane. So you're going to, you're going to interview unbelievers on your show. And, and so we can learn about their worldview opposing. Yeah. Yeah. I'll engage with, um, with Buddhists and Muslims and Hindus. This will, you know, it won't all be like, it's not going to be a worldview uh, exploration a podcast every episode, but I, this is something that I will do. I, I will also have some shows where I'm thinking through, like basically the, the, the idea is investigative. It's investigative. So I'm going to be exploring and investigating all kinds of things hermeneutical questions. How do we understand this one passage? How do we, how do we understand this other religion? How do I understand this idea in this uh, cult? Um, how do we tell real, the real from the counterfeit? Um, so I'll be exploring a lot of issues and subjects. And so, but just that idea of asking questions and following it up in the way that I followed up with the Billy Joel thing, I think is it that helps to give an example of how I want to model the search for truth. Yeah. I think Billy Joel is going to be calling you soon and giving you <laughs> some more information. He's probably going to thank you for doing all that investigative work. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was so happy to find a, a YouTube clip where he actually said, you know, that the, the place where he, he performed at this, this piano bar was on Western in Wilshire. It's like, yeah. this is the thing my dad had been saying all along. And I couldn't find that anywhere online. And it was just this aha moment that, you know what? Sometimes the consensus is wrong. Sometimes mm. the internet is wrong. 
And when you find really good, reliable information, or even better, a match between two reliable characters, I trust my dad. And I know that the best person who can give me information about where Piano Man happened was Billy Joel himself, not the people who, you know, some blog writer or uh, some guy on the internet. So when I got the match between what my dad was pretty sure about and Billy Joel's own words, then I said, here is the foundation. I can, I now have confidence. And that way, see, confidence isn't something that you have to conjure up. It's not a deep feeling like, do I just trust my dad? I, well, I, I think I can have a blind leap and trust my dad. No. What did, what did Luke say to Theophilus? Theophilus, you can have certainty regarding the things you've taught. He actually uses that word certainty. How? Because I am writing scripture. This is God's word. No, Luke doesn't say that. You may come to the conclusion later on by connecting the dots that this is new scripture. But whatever you believe, this, the argument that Luke makes at the beginning of the gospel uh, of his, in his prologue is that he has interviewed, he's collected and, and presented them the material from the eyewitnesses. And he's put this together in an orderly account. That's how you can have certainty. Because this is real history we're talking about. And there are many people who are still alive who can corroborate it. So when yeah. you do your own book on the reliability of gospels, Billy Joel's, uh, Billy Joel's going to do an endorsement for you, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, hmm. Let me think about that. Um, I'm, I, I can't say. I'm, I might. You, what you might see is that some of these things are, could make their way to the introductory chapter. Let's just say that. That would be great. <laughs> so I actually do believe that this is the way to get at the truth. I recently did a lecture on this topic of like pulling at the little threads that show the gospels are not made up. You know, when you do this kind of work, like I did investigating Billy Joel, when you do this mm. kind of work, you see all these kind of little nooks and crannies that show the gospels are real history, real eyewitness accounts. Um, like I mentioned the names thing, but the, the botanical information you get, the architectural information. I mean, John in John 5, 2 mentions specific architectural details that were covered up after the destruction of Jerusalem and only recovered until, you know, not uncovered until 1800. And when we uncovered it, we said, hmm, looks like this is a pool of five porticos. Well, what does John 5, 2 say? Well, there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate of the temple, a pool with five porticos. And, uh, the really interesting thing about that is he says there is in Jerusalem. He didn't say there was. I mean, imagine you and me saying, if you, we read a book where the copyright information is missing and the book says, in the book, it says, there is in New York, this place called the World Trade Center with these amazing two twin towers. Okay, so the you, now you're thinking, hmm, there is in New York. This must have been written before 2001 because the, those aren't those towers aren't there anymore. Well, John uses that language. There is Daniel Wallace says he can't find any example of this sort of historical present weird grammar talk, which is what the most liberal critics criticize. It's kind of like you and I saying Paul writes instead of Paul wrote. It's called the historic present. He can't find any examples of that in any of the ancient Greek literature with the word, the verb to be. So this is an, it's a very good argument that John has. He's not only referring to Jerusalem being you know, existing. He says there is by the sheep gate, that's the sheep gate of the temple, this place of, and sure enough, that side of the temple where the sheep were brought in is where the pool was. 
and it's it all matches beautifully. John is giving us not only accurate information there about the architecture of that side of the temple, but he's also writing it in a way that seems to suggest the temple was still there. Anyway, there's just tons of that kind of stuff throughout the Gospels. Everywhere you look, you look for the architectural, the historical, the geographical, the city names. They're, it's just amazing the kinds of detail you get from first century Palestine that's corroborated from other sources. Yeah, yeah the detail you mentioned earlier that seemingly is um, benign and uh, nuances, but uh, yeah. they, they can be very important. So when we're when we are reading scripture, we're not only doing a walk through redemptive history, but through history period. Yeah, because th this is the, it's an unusual religion that is really grounded upon history. And that's the part that I think when you go back and look at First Corinthians 15, Paul doesn't just say these are some spiritual truths that'll give you your best life now. He says <laughs> these are the things of first importance. And he goes on to talk about that these things happened, that there really was a death and that there really was a burial and there really was a resurrection and there really was fulfilled prophecy. And if this stuff isn't true, we're a, the, your faith is in vain. So the fact, the factual nature of this claim is a part of the gospel. It's a part of the faith. Uh, and if it's, and if we're, if it's didn't happen, if it, none of this happened, we we're the mo men most to be pitied. So we have to recover that and have confidence in it and also have confidence that if it's wrong, we're wasting our time. You know, you brought up an interesting point because you talked about that the resurrection is part of the gospel. When, when we hear people give a presentation of the gospel these days, even in our, even in our circles, you hardly ever hear about the resurrection as part of it. Yeah, I mean, just follow the logic because Paul says, uh, I'm gonna, going to give you the gospel. Uh, this is that which I have received and I'm giving to you the good news which we, we have received. This is the thing of first importance. Uh, whenever I ask people at a Christian gathering to talk about like, what would you say the most important thing in the Bible is? Very rarely will any of the things that Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 15 come up. But he, he, he summarizes that death, burial, resurrection, as seen by, as seen by, as seen by. Uh, in one case, as seen by over 500 brothers. By the way, that 500 brothers is interesting. It's brothers, right? When would the, the most likely time for that have occurred? Like when was, do you remember any time in the book of, in the gospels where there was a, Jesus appeared to 500? My take is when Jesus is resurrected, he says to the 12, go tell my brothers that I will meet them in Galilee. And wow. that has the brothers there have to be the extended disciples, like the 70 plus. And then those 70 have wives and family. And in those days, they're, they're bigger families. And so all the extended families in Galilee would be those who are waiting to meet Jesus. He promised to appear to them. So that has to be that second week. And so there's good textual information that Paul's claim is grounded in. It also says brothers, which is the way they counted then. Think about the feeding of the 5,000. It wasn't 5,000. It was 5,000, not including women and children, according to Matthew. And so that's the way they counted because they would distribute food according to the 50 or 100 men who would then meet in a small group, distribute the food. So they count heads of the male, you know, head, they count the heads of the households. So if you have a five a count of 500, it's probably something like 700 to 1,000 people in this one meeting 
And the other thing Matthew says is that when they saw Jesus, some doubted. That's a very strange thing to say if you're making up a religion or the places where, you know, <laughs> Jesus will, you know, he's talking with his brothers. And then John, the narrator, steps and says, not even his brothers believed in him. Or Mark, the, his, his brothers and sisters thought he was insane. As, as a rule, mm -hmm. if you're making up a religion, you don't want to <laughs> give hints that his family members thought he was insane. And yet, what do you see in that 1 Corinthians 15 thing? He appeared to James. Interesting that he appears to James. Well, then what do you see in Acts? James and the other brothers are meeting with Jesus. Uh, sorry, meeting with the, the, the disciples. So something convinced them. And the best thing that could have convinced them is the resurrection. Otherwise, how do you explain the brothers who thought he was insane? I mean, we actually know about James' martyrdom from Josephus. Josephus records the death and martyrdom of, of James. He calls him the brother of Christ. Mm -hmm. It's an undisputed section in Josephus. Nobody disputes this passage. It mentions Jesus and his brother James. And it says he was, he was such a convinced follower. In it, he had authority in Jerusalem, and he was martyred. And it actually caused an out, such an outcry that they deposed the high priest after he'd reigned only three or four months. So that was something Josephus recognized and talks about. Well, something had to con now. Do you guys have brothers? Real, real quick, so Jesus, so Josephus is a Jewish historian, correct? Jew, Jewish historian. He's talking about. He references Jesus and Jesus, James, the brother of Jesus. But I, I would. I don't know. I have a brother, and if my brother claimed to be the Messiah, I I would be with you know the brothers of Jesus, thinking, okay, he's crazy. He's just he's gone crazy. Let's bring him aside. And take him someplace like a nice sanitarium. Um, that that's a natural instinct. But but the thing is, James actually does get converted. We know that not only from Acts, but we know that from Josephus. He was not just a converted uh, Christian, a believer in Jesus' messianic, his divine messianic identity. But he's also a leader in the '60s uh, of Jerusalem of the church. Something has to con. What can convince anyone to believe that their their brother was the divine Messiah of Israel? It's got to yeah, be something big. Even John the Baptist, right? He had his doubts. He even sent people to ask Jesus if he was the one that uh, is to come and so on. And um, was his reply was basically re reiterating fulfilled prophecy. Yeah. Yeah. Right? He didn't. He was never. Jesus never uh, sent a message to John the Baptist saying. John, how the mighty have fallen. Um, you know, why are you, why, why are you asking questions? What, what happened? What, what happened to the day when you said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes mm -hmm. away the sin of the world? You had such strong faith then. Why, why are these questions? What happened to your faith? You're in jail because of your lack of faith, John the Baptist. <laughs> You're not having your best life now. You must be out of the prayer bubble. You, something's going wrong. A prayer bubble. So the thing is, what does he do? He gives him reasons to believe. He just says, um, well, what? go back and tell John what you have seen. The dead uh, are raised, the blind see, the, the lame leap, uh, the deaf hear. All those were not just things that his disciples saw because Jesus was doing those things right when they came. They not only saw that, so these are people he trusts deeply. He says, go back and tell him what you've seen. But those particular things that he saw were also very deeply symbolic things mentioned in the Old Testament prophets. Th those particular uh, miracles were prophesied hundreds and hundreds of years ago about what the Messiah would do when he came. 
And so that enriched his faith. And all of us, we just we should take comfort, I think, in the fact that even a person like John the Baptist can have a moment of doubt. And even in our moment of doubt, we're not given shame. We're given comfort. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Yes. Shane, before we get going, uh, what's the name of your podcast again for the audience? A Humble Skeptic. Uh, and if you want more information, it's humbleskeptic.com. Humbleskeptic.com. On there, there's a link to listen to the pilot that we've been talking about. There's also a link to, you know, donate, help with a startup via gifts and go. Um, but if you want, you could also just kind of click on the, uh, the podcast and you could subscribe that way. If you subscribe, you could subscribe like via, it's via Substack, but you can do a paid subscription or you could do a free subscription. So if you want to do like a, a small little help, you can do this sort of, you know, monthly or, uh, or yearly sort of, you know, I'll contribute 60 bucks a year kind of thing. Um, so anyway, that's how I'm, um, I'm getting support for this particular new effort, the humble skeptic. And it's the, right now we, we have like, um, a couple of weeks before we'll do the official rollout. I'm not, you can't find me on iTunes or Spotify or those other outlets just yet. It's only available via Substack at the moment. So the best place to go to get it or to point people to is the humble, uh, humble skeptic.com or the humble skeptic.com. And will it be, well, excuse me, excuse me, will it be available on Apple or any of the other platforms? Yeah, eventually. Um, but right now I'm just kind of going to build up, uh, they, th- what they say is you got to have like three or four episodes before you, you know, as you launch. So I'm going to put a bunch of episodes together and then I'll put it out on all those platforms. Yeah, that's awesome. Everybody, I, I with admonish you to all go listen to the um, initial podcast. It's great. I found it very interesting. Shane is very clear and articulate, as you can hear now. And Plus, you know, my dad's he's... funny. <laughs> yeah, he's hilarious. I've he gotten loves... so many emails from people saying, your dad is hilarious. He sounds like a great guy. <laughs> uh, and, your, and your mother, by the way, too. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the daffodils blooming. That was a great scene, too. Just the, the mo- oh, yeah, the daffodils bloom. That was a key bit of, you know, evidential. Uh, it's an artifact that's helped sort of reopen my entire, you know, investigation of this of the subject matter so the whole thing about the whole thing about tulips growing in the front was that (laughs) intentional that that was not intentional just it was one of those ad hoc things that came from my mom she is she's not a believer and um this is i I actually am the only person who came to faith um in my family i have uh mother father brother and they are not believers um and this particular uh you know that my family situation kind of explains a little bit of who I am uh, because I'm, I always want to think of people like that, who um, they're, they're kind of, they're somewhat interested and they, they're all supporting me in this, but they, they still don't really terribly like religious conversations. So I'm trying to make it interesting and accessible from an outsider's perspective. That's also another way into understanding what I'm trying to do with the humble skeptic. It's, it's got, what I really want is for this podcast to be the kind of thing you'll share with anyone. Yeah. You know, not just, not just uh, something for us inside the faith to listen to, but something you'd be interested in sharing with somebody from outside the faith. Yeah, well, yeah. there you go. Listen to Shane Rosenthal, the humble skeptic. Shane, if I, may, if I may, a uh, quick question. Can you tell us who your next guest will be? Or uh, is that some, something you want to withhold for now? Hmm. 
I've recorded a bunch of them. I will tell you this. Uh, I don't know the order, but I, I did recently talk with uh, Dennis Johnson. You know that? that name? Oh, yeah. Yeah. We, I love Dennis Johnson. One of the things I, I did with, with Dr. Johnson is uh, since he's written books on the, uh, he's written a lot of things on the book of Acts. So um, I asked him, Dr. Johnson, can you remember any time in any of the sermons in the book of Acts when the apostle is there in front of, you know, he's at a synagogue or a temple with lots of people gathered around and where he says something like, just take a leap of faith and believe in Jesus. You know, deep in your heart, it's true. You'll feel it in your heart. Do you remember any time when they said something like this? He, he just simply, he paused. It's like, no, no, I, I can't remember them ever doing that. <laughs> That's the point. I think we just got to, we should be skeptical of a lot of schlock that passes for Christianity in our time. Yes. There's just a lot of stuff out there that is not the way it's stated in the text. The text, I think, is clear. We need to, the classic Reformation slogan, you guys want to get back to the Reformation. The best one is being reformed and always reforming according to the word of God. Hmm. Amen. Amen. Onig, where can people reach us? They could reach us by email at um, info at bttrmin.org. They can go to our website, bttrmin.org. They can find our podcast on Apple, Google, Stitcher, Spotify, and pretty much a dozen other um, podcast-related sites. Um, and also, they can reach us by email at backtothereformation at gmail.com. Great. curious like what how does it work like if you tell a person on the podcast that you can listen to the podcast on stitcher how are they gonna know because they have to listen to your podcast in order to know that it's on stitcher <laughs> <laughs> it's always confusing to me cool. we, have, so there's, we have the website so <laughs> okay so, okay. so where there's an epi- you're saying there's an epistemological it's an epistemological there. circle i'm confused <laughs> For the next hour, we're going to talk about how we can listen to a podcast. <laughs> anyway, Shane, thanks for coming back, my it's friend. It's been a pleasure, guys. I really like talking to you guys. Yeah, thank you, Shane. All right. And you've been and you've been listening to another episode of Back to the Reformation podcast, and we hope you join us next time. See ya. <laughs> <laughs>